live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back to part two of our Holocaust series. Last week's episode about the Gestapo was so incredible that we had people asking us where you got this information from. It was such a detailed account. You know, apart from the interviews you mentioned, do you have any anything to back it up? Well, there is a book written. There's even a film made, although the film is a terrible portrayal. But yes, these are the sources. Right. So this week is a very different topic. It's not talking about a heroic individual. Yes. We will talk about the strategic alliance between Nazi Germany and America's most powerful corporation, IBM. So the Holocaust was possible because the Nazis had access not only to guns and gas, but also to cutting edge census technology. And they had access to this technology because IBM maintained its market dominance of the global data processing market. Now, I know this sounds exaggerated, and obviously a Holocaust would have taken place without any technology, and the technocrats themselves didn't kill anyone. But unknown to most people, the speed, the efficiency, and ultimately the number of victims across 11 countries was down to data. When the final solution effectively transported Jews out of ghettos, along railways into death camps, with timings so precise that basically the victims walked out of the boxcars into a gas chamber, this coordination was so complex that it required a computer, except that in the 1930s, no computer existed. But another invention did the IBM punch card and card sorting system, which was a precursor to the computer. And IBM, primarily through its German subsidiary, made Hitler's program of Jewish destruction a technologic mission that the company pursued with chilling success, as we will see. And this was something new for mankind. Never before had so many people been identified so precisely, so silently, so quickly, and with such far-reaching consequences. The way it is described is the dawn of the information age began at the sunset of human decency, and no one would escape. This company, or at least its German subsidiary, IBM Germany, known in those days as Deutsche Hollerith Maschinengesellschaft, or Dehomag, didn't simply sell the Reich machines and then walk away. With the knowledge of its New York headquarters, it custom-designed these very complex devices, and beyond which the machines were never sold. They were leased out, and therefore they were regularly maintained for the Nazis by one source, IBM. And in fact, punch cards could only be designed printed and purchased from this one source. They controlled 90% of the world's market. Wow. What are your sources this week for this information? So the book 
the book in a way, on the subject was written by Edwin Black. It was released in 2001 simultaneously in nine languages. And more or less the next two podcasts are due to his book. And also I've been in touch with him over the past few weeks. And amongst the many write-ups that the international press gave reviewing the book, one of them says, Black's book establishes beyond dispute that IBM Hollerith machines significantly advanced Nazi efforts to exterminate Jewry. Another one says, Black's book is so enlightening because it paints a richly textured picture of how one man, Tom Watson, the head of IBM, and an entire company can ignore all sense of morality. Now, the author himself wrote that he received cooperation from every public and governmental source in every country. The only refusal came from IBM itself, which rebuffed my requests for access to documents, and I was not alone. Since World War II, the company has steadfastly refused to cooperate with outside authors. Virtually every recent book on IBM includes a reference to the company's refusal to cooperate with them, and obviously for very good reason. Interestingly, the one place to see part of this issue, this betrayal of humanity, is at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. The very first exhibited item is an IBM Hollerith machine, but the exhibit explains little more than the fact that IBM was responsible for organizing the census in 1933 that first identified the Jews. So, you know, most people walk by it it, unaware of its role in mass murder. IBM is a massive company. Was Tom Watson the main decision maker? So he very much was the person behind IBM, its goals, its quest for money and power. He was its president. He'd been in position since 1915. He'd been making money for years with few scruples of how he did so. And interestingly, almost all references to his business practices have been edited from standard write-ups online, you know, for example, Wikipedia. In 1924, he renamed the company International Business Machines, and he felt it was the personification of what both he and his enterprise were about. IBM is more than a business. It's a worldwide institution that is going on forever. And indeed, nowadays, it has a turnover of $60 billion and a quarter of a million employees. Now, in America, he was an ideal employer. Employees were well treated, they had good working conditions, they were invited to, you know, picnics and dances, and he promoted his image. There were large pictures of him on the walls and in the company magazine, and Fortune magazine referred to Watson as the leader with a capital L. By giving liberally to charities, universities, becoming a patron of the arts, he cultivated a myth about himself and ultimately about IBM. And it is true to say that during this era, no businessman in the country got his name and picture in the newspapers more often. It's a very well-promoted individual. But then, when the Nazi dictatorship sort of came of age in Germany, it offered Watson something unique. It was an opportunity. He could provide a government with data with regimentation on a plane never before known in human history. 
Because, as we mentioned, IBM controlled 90% of the world market in punch cards and sorters, these punch cards were not delivered sort of ready to use, like typewriters or machine guns. Each Hollerith system had to be custom designed by their own engineers, because if you're going to create an inventory of spare aircraft parts, or you want to track down Jews, they have to have completely different designs. And obviously, for the moral dilemma, that didn't exist for IBM. Supplying the Nazis would create enormous profits, and that was the only calculation. The technology, it seems like it was data sorting, but you still had to almost get the data. I'm a bit unclear what they actually contributed to the Nazi Okay, so let's deal with that which is referenced in the Washington Holocaust Museum. In 1933, Hitler had a problem, the Jews. No one knew how many there were in his country, where they lived, their names, and the government was incapable of carrying out such a massive census. You would have got handwritten pieces of paper that then needed to be typed up on a typewriter, about 60 million people. They needed to be sorted, catalogued. It would have been an impossible task. IBM offered to design a package which would classify every citizen and it would recruit and train the hundreds of workers needed to process the census. And as a result, on June 16th, 1933, a half a million census takers, they were nationalistically motivated, shall we say, went door to door gathering information. They recorded not only the totals of people, but the location and the type of Jew. You get outputs after the census has been taken and put through these punch cards that the largest concentration of Jews in Berlin is in the Wilmersdorf district. There are 26,000 observant Jews and they account for 13.54% of the population. There are 1,200 fur Jews who were 5.2% of the furrier trade and nearly three quarters of these are foreigners. Now you might say, okay, we've got data, who cares? But by cross-sorting the Jews, those who in column 22, row 3, um, were Polish speakers, and then crossed with columns 26 and 27, row 10, were Jews, the Nazi Reich was able to identify who amongst the Jews would be the first targets for arrest, for expulsion. The Ostjuden, the Eastern Jews, they could now target victims from each town across the whole of the country. I always wondered how the Germans managed to track down every Jew. I mean, even the the secular Jews that were visibly not Jewish at all, they somehow managed to have data on all of them. So are you saying that this was due to this census being taken door to door and people just admitted to them they were Jewish? It wasn't so much admitted. Remember, the dictatorship is in place and there has been already a boycott of the Jews. You are not going to hold out against uh, the Nazis. There would have been some that would have escaped the census, uh, but in the main, Yes, they would have been too scared not to answer questions. Bearing in mind that in 1933, it didn't sound too frightening to admit that you were Jewish. And anyway, that information theoretically could have been obtained from your neighbor, even if you were not openly practicing in any way. Now, this business deal went through very smoothly, and IBM increased its investment in Delmarg from 400,000 Reichsmarks to 7 million 
which is about a million dollars. It's a hundred million dollars in today's world. This would include a million Reichsmarks to purchase land in Berlin and build IBM's first German factory. They were basically tooling up for what they saw as a massive economic relationship with the regime. And the net income for the first six months of 1934 was almost three and a half million dollars higher than the three million dollars that they made in 1933. Watson himself gets a bonus of 5% on all of their IBM's worldwide profits. So his salary came to $364,432 per year. And the newspapers revealed that he had now become the highest paid executive in America. And they called him the $1,000 per day man, right? $364,000. And Nazi Germany became IBM's second most important customer after the US market. Now, he knew he needed to stay close to development in Germany, an emerging market like that. So in 1934, he visits twice. In 1935, he shifted the company's European headquarters from Paris to Geneva. Why? Because it was more neutral. Yes, both politically and economically. He assumes that at some stage, the Reich might decree that German companies are no longer going to pay for imports from America and the profits would be blocked, perhaps only in the short term. So he channels the money in Germany into tangible assets. He even bought apartment buildings, which he rented out. The profits would accrue throughout World War II and they'd be paid afterwards. Um, But uh, obviously, he has to make sure that America, New York, retains full control of the activities. So the bylaws would allow IBM New York to supersede the German board of directors at any time. Was no one in America outraged by his behavior, such a public figure? It's a real scandal. Okay, so that's an important point. You know, he's helping the Nazis. Really, his job, one could almost say, splits into three periods of time. Let's deal with the first, which we are at at the moment, 1933 to 1939. His two main concerns. Firstly, to ensure that the Nazis didn't simply walk off with his machines, you know, nationalize it, and also to make sure that America continued to support him. So dealing with the latter, he starts an active campaign to curry favor with the politicians from the very top. He had access to... Secretary of State, Hull, and more importantly to Franklin Roosevelt, the president, because he donated large sums to the Roosevelt campaign and publicly supported some of Roosevelt's more controversial policies. And the two people, Put two men, you know, Watson and, and uh, Roosevelt began to correspond. And Watson would carry around these letters, showing them off when he could. He even stayed overnight at the White House to the degree that Roosevelt offered to appoint Watson as Secretary of Commerce or Ambassador to England. But Watson wasn't going to leave IBM. He was making far too much money. So why didn't Germany just walk off with his machines? So the other concern, he promoted Germany. In public speeches, he told Americans that he, unlike them, had visited Germany and the world must extend, and I quote, a sympathetic understanding to the German people and their aims under the leadership of Adolf Hitler. When he was voted as head of the International Chamber of Commerce, the ICC, he scheduled the 1937 International Assembly in Berlin 
We are going to Berlin because we are free of those antagonisms. Now, you know, the ICC is a big organisation. Nowadays, it's got 45 million members, but even back then. Now, the Germans also needed him to keep supplying their technology. In fact, at the ICC Congress, because of what he was doing for Germany, he was decorated by Hitler. He was given the highest medal that Germany could confer on any non-German. And he worked alongside with Goebbels as his stage manager. He made, Watson this is, made the 1937 ICC conference a commercial tribute to Germany. And after the conference, he wrote to Hitler on July 5th as follows. Your Excellency Adolf Hitler, before leaving Berlin, I wish to express my pride in and deep gratitude for the high honour I received. Valuing fully the spirit of friendship which underlay this honour, I assure you that in the future, as in the past, I will endeavour to do all in my power to create more intimate bonds between our two great nations. My wife and my family join in best wishes for you. Thomas J. Watson, IBM. This is 1937 already, right? And he knows by now that war is very likely. Heidinger, who was one of his German managers, sent a memo to IBM New York detailing plans to build bomb shelters. He wrote that the authorities have approached us with demands that sufficient care should be taken to protect our plant and operations against air attack. And on the 4th of August 1938, they were told that Demohag envisions expanding into seven or eight more countries. Meaning that they're going to war. Yeah, exactly. So, in 1938, Watson visited Germany twice, once in late May, just after the Anschluss of Austria, once in October during the build-up to Kristallnacht. But for Watson, whatever Hitler was doing to the Jews and other enemies of the Reich was no obstacle to making profit on Germany's plans. In his words again, you know, you can cooperate with a man without believing in everything he says and does. If you don't agree with everything he does, cooperate with him in the things you do believe in. Well, what do you believe in when it comes to Hitler? If your name is Watson, you believe in money. And on another occasion, Watson said, I'm an American citizen, but in the IBM, I'm a world citizen because we do business in 78 countries and they all look alike to me, every one of them. However, when Watson's ocean liner anchored at New York, just days after the November 10th Kristallnacht, he realized that American sentiment had become so extremely anti-Nazi, to go back to your original question, that he now needed to distance himself from the regime to keep America on his side. At the end of the day, he's his largest client. So he wrote a letter on November 25th to Dr. Schacht, the president of the Reichsbank in Berlin. And he says, I returned from Europe about 10 days ago, and I feel I owe it to the German people to tell you of the tremendous loss of goodwill to Germany on account of the largest pol of the latest policies of Germany in regard to dealing with Jewish minorities in your country. I feel that I would be unfair to my long list of Jewish friends if I didn't appeal to your government to give fair consideration to the Jews as human beings and to their property rights. Yours very truly, Watson. Now, he reviews this letter, which was typed up by his secretary, and he would be able to show from now on his, you know, protest letter to anyone who inquired as to what his opinion was, except that he never sent the letter. 
it's in the records. Now, in 1939, May 17th, as the war was really about to start, as we now know, Germany had another census because they had to identify all the Jews in the newly acquired Nazi territory, the expanded Reich, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and the card recorded the individual's bloodline data. So here it was irrelevant if you were a totally non-practicing Jew and in your mind you would have answered the census to say you're not a Jew. Here they asked what your parentage was and they now had a total of 330,539 racial Jews as they called it. In July 39 he's back in Berlin on business because... The Third Reich needed to launch the next decisive step in the solution of the Jewish question, because now it wouldn't just be Germany, but all of Europe. So the job spec was about to grow from 300,000 Jews to more than 10 times that. And until now, the fastest tabulators and sorters could only organize by numbers. But Watson owned something much more powerful. It was called the 405. This machine was very expensive. And by 1939, it was the IBM's main machine or dominant machine in the United States. But it required so many raw materials and rationed materials that the IBM Germany couldn't buy them. It was out of reach for the Nazi Reich. But it was of uh, you know prime importance to Germany. The 405 could calculate... 1.2 million multiplications in 40 hours. The older model would need 800 hours. Okay, so he's there in July. They don't make any final decisions. And then in September, the war breaks out. A week later, Watson received the following letter. Dear Mr. Watson, during your last visit in Berlin at the beginning of July, you made me the kind offer that you might be willing to furnish the German company with machines. You will understand that under today's conditions, a certain need has arisen for such machines, the 405s. Regarding the payment, I cannot make any concrete proposals at the moment. However, I should ask you to be convinced that I shall see to it that a fair reimbursement for the machines left with us will be made whenever there is a possibility. Yours very truly, H. Rotka, cc'd this letter to IBM Geneva. Wow. But this was now the second phase. This was 1939 and onwards. Yes, so the second phase is 1939 to 1941. The war has broken out, and now... Germany would be the enemy of the West, but it's not yet illegal for Americans to trade with them. At the same time, he has to cover his tracks. So he didn't date the letter that he responded to the chairman of IBM Germany. In fact, he didn't even send it directly to Germany. It's given to his secretary. She sends it to a guy called Milner in the Geneva office with a note advising, I've been instructed by Mr. Watson to forward the letter to Mr. Hermann Rotka. Uh, please see that the letter reaches him. The only reason we know the date is because it was filed in Watson's office and date stamped September the 13th. And IBM now willingly diminishes its own identity as part of the effort to keep trading with Germany. It takes a lower profile. New York executives were advised that in future, all machines shipped to Germany, they have to remove IBM from the machine. 
and that they should be very careful advertising the name of IBM in Germany. So, you know, it appears to the German authorities that uh, three Germans owned Deomag, even though it was 100% controlled by IBM through, you know, legal fictions and uh, shell companies. In early 1940, IBM Geneva sends Watson a statement of Deomag's 1939 profits. They were almost double the previous year. In 1940, late 1940, October 26th, by which time German now indeed occupied the eight countries it had spoken about, you know, France and Holland and Norway, IBM's attorney, Harrison Troncy, was sent to Germany to negotiate IBM's entire European business strategy. And a company notice appeared which said that a member of the IBM legal staff is going to visit Switzerland and Portugal while abroad, which were neutral countries. But in truth, he would make his way from Lisbon to Berlin for face-to-face negotiations because Nazi Germany needed punch cards, not next month or next week. It needed them every hour of every day across the country and across the industries, whether it's in the army or whether it's in other places, and only IBM could provide them. Just technically, these punch cards, what 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 they do? I just don't understand the system. They, they allow data to be recorded and then, so to speak, spat out because there it's are... It's like an old version of a scanner, basically that can compile a lot of information at one point. Yes, I'm not sure if I would call it a scanner. It's really a very early computer. People used to have, maybe 50 years ago, these little cards that you could feed into a machine with phone numbers in, and you let the card, so to speak, fall into this receiving end, and it dialed for you which was, you know, highly innovative back then. (laughs) This is far, far more sophisticated, even though it predates computers, but it allows data to be captured and then sorted, collated, divided by whatever you need, a person's height, a person's racial origins, where they have been living, a host of data. You had up to 60 different entries which could be tabulated. Right. So how much did IBM actually know about what was going on, the crimes you, of the you Holocaust? You mean the purpose behind all of this? Yes. Officially, nothing at all. Nothing that could directly link IBM New York to Nazi Germany, unless you took a route through Geneva and through a web of companies, as I mentioned. Unofficially? Listen, some of it IBM knew on a daily basis. IBM New York officials, including Watson's personal representatives, Harrison Chauncey, Werner Lear, were frequently in occupied German territory during the war. They were monitoring activities, ensuring that the parent company in New York wasn't cut out of any of the profits. And when US law made direct contact illegal, the Swiss office became the nexus, providing the New York office continuous information, but credible deniability. As an example, in 1940, IBM New York knew the exact location of its machines anywhere in the Reich, because without it, it couldn't audit IBM. Bearing in mind that the Germans are leasing the equipment from IBM, they don't own the machines, they have to pay ongoing, Uh, nor would IBM be able to update the equipment. So you have a typical machine list in a Manhattan office, which was labeled in German, machines as of September 30th, 1940. 
And, you know, the, the wall officially that existed contained so many cracks and gaps as to make it imaginary. The flow of informa- information, instructions, approvals by Watson remained well into 1944. IBM's European managers got permission from the Nazi authorities to travel back and forward between neutral nations and Nazi-held territory, even Germany itself. The people in in Europe, at least, regularly sent IBM uh, letters, reports. Some were handwritten notes. Others were long sales reports or monthly summaries, all sent from Axis-controlled subsidiaries of IBM to New York through neutral cities. And in fact, you know, John Holt, he was one of the uh, New York uh, crew. He told a colleague, wire Schotter for the information you need, but take care that your request is worded in a way that it can pass the censor, because any information about military activity will get the recipient as well as the sender into considerable hot water. Even before America entered the war in 1941, military trading with Germany was illegal. But millions of punch cards were routinely shipped from IBM in America to Nazi-controlled sources in Poland, in France, and in Belgium, or um, routed circuitously through Sweden or even colonies in Africa. And all monies were accounted for and audited and approved by New York. Watson was even told that the French subsidiary had charged an extra one and a half francs for wine with lunch in the company canteen. So they were receiving money during the war from the Nazis. There's no two ways about it. Yes. Well, it depends which type of companies. The overall answer is yes. Into their Swiss companies, at least, which would then be passed on. In other words, when IBM New York were delivering machines or sending punch cards or uh, taking uh, profits for leasing, yes. But the profits that accrued in Germany itself, there, IBM's New York legal team were assured that during the years that they their alien corporation, as it was, was under Nazi control, all the profits would be blocked in an account, but safely. And that way, well, let's see what happens. If the Nazis sort of settle or win the war, their normal business would continue. If they lost, the money would be paid out as part of reparations in accordance with the payment of enemy debts in general. So they were well well placed as long as they were prepared to be patient on those profits. Now, obviously, the very worst of it, IBM preferred not to know. It was a sort of don't ask, don't tell order of the day. So after 1939, the Germans now had overran Poland. They now needed to run a census for many, many, like hundreds of thousands of new Jews. Millions. Yes and no. Because the smaller ghettos were left to the locals to tabulate. You didn't need a census there. But let's take as an example the Warsaw Ghetto, which created one of the most, what one might call, destructive pieces of IBM data gathering. In October '39. Adam Chernyakov, who had been made into the head of the Judenrat, is summoned to the Einsatzgruppe officers because Germany wants to transfer hundreds of thousands of Jews into a ghetto. But to do this, to remove them from their homes and businesses across capital city and compress them into a small you know, prison-like neighborhood was a, an enormous logistical task that required uh, enormous planning. So he is instructed to create and carry out a questionnaire. The Nazis were already gathering house-by-house lists of residents. And in fact, 
Chaim Kaplan, who was one of the most famous Warsaw Holocaust diarists, he records on October 25th, another sign that bodes ill. Today, notices inform the Jewish population of Warsaw that next Saturday there will be a, tent, a census of the Jewish inhabitants. Our hearts tell us of evil. And the results came back with what you might call almost magical speed. In little more than two days, all the forms had been counted. By October 31st, Cherniakov had been told that there were around 360,000 Jews in Warsaw. They had the exact number, 359,827. And these forms are now going to be recorded by the Holoriths and broken down by, for instance, age. So they knew that Jews of uh, infancy to 15... 46,172 male, 45,439 female. And a month later, the Jews would be forced into the ghetto. And soon, in fact, all Jews would become Hollerith numbers. And those council members who didn't cooperate or, you know, hesitated were murdered. When it became apparent to the men of the Yudhnerat that they were not conducting censuses and other statistical duties for the purposes of survival, but for organized extermination, so they were faced with a moral dilemma. The head of Grodno's ghetto's statistical department resigned in November 42 when the plans became apparent. So immediately his name is placed on the next transport. He commits suicide, so his whole family is sent in his place. You have a guy in the Mint ghetto called Moshe Kramars who understood what was happening and he tore up the document that made the uh, obvious apparent. He tore it into pieces in front of a group of people and started shouting to all of them that this resettlement or evacuation is really extermination. So the Gestapo dragged the whole group away. They just killed them all. And in uh, Bereska Kartuska, when the uh, Judenrat was ordered to produce a list of Jews to assemble at the marketplace in uh, October 42 for work in Russia, the Judenrat understood that they would be sending people to their deaths. So the council members hanged themselves in order to protest and, you know, not be part of this. Now, in Romania... Uh, a census was carried out in April 41. Werner Lear, who is one of Watson's main people, he writes to Chauncey in New York, we haven't been able to obtain any precise information about the specifications of the machines that they need in Bucharest. So I agreed to Mr. Hummer, who is an IBM employee, going to Bucharest together with a representative of the German statistical office, at the end of which... Obviously, the purpose of the census would have been crystal clear. So, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Here, they would have known exactly why this census is being carried out. And in fact, in June, two months later, the dictator there, Antonescu, demanded that all the Jews in the main region between the ages of 16 and 60 be shipped to concentration camps on scheduled trains. The trains were now coordinated through these punch cards with the people. How many, how many in each boxcar and it was done within 48 hours half of Yassi's 100,000 population was Jewish and identifying them in a sort of in a lightning operation would have been an impossibility but the intelligence units now had IBM's data and punch cards and thousands of Jews in the town are dragged from their homes not only was violence carried out on them and, you know, corpses piling up in the street, but the Jews are now loaded onto the death trains and 13,000 lost their lives.
There was, however, a hitch for IBM. In 1942, a year later, they still hadn't been paid for the machines they'd sent to Romania for the census. Except by then, Romania was deemed enemy territory. So Lear tried to secure a special license to pay the bank commissions from the Romanian government to the Société de Banque Suisse in Geneva. As you said, money was always the priority. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to end this week with France. In 1941, the Germans demanded data on the Jews, but last religious census in the country had been undertaken in 1872. So the Nazis gave the job to the police, but each préfecture executed its own count in its own way, and they're using small coloured pieces of paper and index cards. Now, the General Commissioner for Jewish Questions, Xavier Vallat, eventually realised that this task is impossible. And then help comes his way unexpectedly. A guy called René Carmille, who was the Controller General of the French Army, the statistical controller general, had always been an advocate of punch cards. And he had Hollerith machines in working order. So he offers to end the census chaos. He promised that his tabulators would um, deliver the Jews of France. And he would create a form that would produce all the necessary information about the Jews for deportation, etc. He creates the National Statistical Service in late 41, and Valat asks the ministry to pay a quite considerable cost of the services, 400,000 francs, and to arrange for the transportation of all materials to Karamil's offices and all the Jewish paper forms that they had, there was over 100,000 of them, they're now given to Karamil. But by June 42, there'd been delays and holdups, and Berlin refuses to wait any longer. So they use whatever information they had before the war started and begin organising roundups of Jews in Paris. Now, Nazi Allied officials couldn't be certain which addresses were accurate because, you know, Camille's calculations are not ready yet. And so in the roundups, they only got half the amount of Jews that they had hoped for. They carry out a second raid, but the numbers still fall short. So they now cordoned off major intersections in Paris and they grabbed any Jew, basically between the ages of 18 and 50, Although Jews were now sort of hiding, even temporarily, because they knew what was going on, and the Germans now realised that their cards were inefficient. Where were Camille's punch cards at that time? Okay, so hold on a second. This was in June and August. In November 42, the Americans landed in Algeria, which had originally been French. And on December 5th, 1942... French forces seized the National Statistics Office um, in Algiers, and they used Camille's system of punch cards through which de Gaulle's people, this is the, the French resistance, they are now back in charge in Algeria because the Germans have been kicked out, they are able to organize a sort of almost miraculous rapid mobilization of thousands of Frenchmen in Algeria to fight against the Germans. By January, by January 43, the loyal French elements in Algeria were already there, able to fight as a cohesive and efficient army. The Germans couldn't understand how the French army in Algeria was assembled so quickly using Camille's data. Surely 
his office had only been tracking Jews and general labourers that they wanted for slave labour in Germany. So they launch an inquiry and they find out that Carmel is a secret agent for the French resistance movement and that he had no intention of delivering the Jews. It was a cover-up. German intelligence receives a dossier which shows that under the cover of a census of the population, it was a, a secret mobilization office. A quote from the report, we have been informed that nearly all the directors of the office were officers of the resistance. The demographic office could now mobilize in a matter of days aviators, tank drivers, mechanics needed to make up organized units in the event that France were to be invaded by the Allies and the resistance would now be able to come out into the open. Camille had deceived the Nazis. From 1911, he'd been a member of the counterintelligence, and he was one of the highest-placed operatives of the French resistance. His operation had generated approximately 20,000 fake identity passes, and he'd been working for months on the database of 800,000 former soldiers in France. He had their names, addresses, their military abilities. You know, as for... Column 11, which asked about Jewish identity, those holes were never punched. The answers were never tabulated. So these pieces of paper were never turned into anything effective for the Nazis. He foiled this enterprise. Now, Jews were still deported in the thousands, but the methods were inefficient and it allowed many to escape the net. Eventually, obviously, the SS arrested Camille. He was taken to the Hotel Terminus, where his interrogator was the despised and infamous butcher of Lyon, Klaus Barbie, who had tortured many members of the resistance. And Camille endured two days straight under Barbie's hand, and he never cracked. He was eventually sent to Dachau in July of 1944, where, unfortunately, he died of typhus in January, on January 25th, 1945. Wow, the true hero. Absolutely. Did uh, Yad Vashem honor him with one of the uh, righteous among the nations? So I'm not actually sure. I will try and look that up for next week. Incredible. It's mad how you see constantly in history how all morals just got waved to the side by sheer greed. Yes, absolutely. That's, that is IBM in a sentence. We still have to do phase three, 1942 yes. onwards. Very importantly, dealing with what happened in the concentration camps. We haven't dealt with that at all, which is really the main phase. Um, and then what happened to IBM immediately after the war, which is perhaps the shocking phase. And how they got away with being such a massive company until today. Yep. Okay, thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Please send any questions, any feedback to podcasts at jaylee.org.uk and just make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss another episode. Thank you. Mm-hmm.